Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast. And don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, briancleman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedroni, with me, Brian the Angry Man Clayman. And today we have a returning special guest, Chris Fernandez, formerly of the Toronto Police Service and Deputy Chief of Durham. Um, and uh, the interesting, well, the reason why we brought Chris back specifically was uh, I think we're going to have a really good conversation today on uh, what we've been seeing in the news, unfortunately, which, uh, which is an increasing spike in all kinds of violent uh, behavior, but in particular shootings. Um, we're going to talk about the Texas uh, tragedy, um, and, and we're going to get into sort of some of the things that maybe the private sector security people, the practitioners could, should consider uh, when uh, when they're dealing with these types of things. So talking about what we are going to be talking about, what seems like an ever increasing violent society. Um, you know, we talk about carjackings and, you know, Brian and I talked, touched on that last podcast. We went from, um, you know, winter uh, thefts of vehicles in, in driveways with their keys in it, you know, no risk to, really to the person to now they're just basically pulling up at a, at a stop sign and, and they're taking it by force. So we've seen that increase in violence. And of course, we're going to talk about shootings, and specifically mass shootings. Even this morning, there was freaking two, two more clowns who were uh, shooting pellet guns around schools. After all that's gone on in the last couple of weeks, you've still got idiots out there who don't think that uh, that could be a problem and end up leading to an unnecessary police shooting. Um, and really, what I think uh, we want to take away from, from today is some perspective on uh, you know what really is happening around us. We're not in Afghanistan, thank God. Um, and the likelihood of people experiencing a shooting or an act of violence in their daily life is still very low, certainly in Canada, not so much in, in the U.S. So we want to keep that on the horizon. And just before I turn it over to you guys for some opening comments, I just want to give you an interesting uh, stat that I read this morning. So since the shooting in Texas, in Uval, Texas, which is basically, what, seven, eight days ago, there's been 17 more mass shootings in the U.S. And that a mass shooting, for those who don't know, is they are classified as four people dead or more. Uh, so 17 shootings in, in the space of seven or eight days in the U.S. Uh, if I took that same barometer and applied it to Canada, just to give you perspective, and counted back 17 mass shootings, what we would consider mass shootings in Canada, I have to go back to July, July 17, 1759. <laughs> where a bloody falls massacre ended with 20 people dead. And that's Wiki, Wikipedia. That's where I got the information if you're interested. But, you know, to count back almost three centuries to equate what the U.S. sees in a week just tells you the difference between American society and Canadian society. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to either one of you, whoever wants to start, just some initial thoughts on what you're seeing in the news and some of your concerns with what's happening. And, you know, is it overplayed or or are we overreacting to it? Okay, well, I'll just start off with a couple of comments. First of all, there's nothing to worry about in Canada because A, we're nicer and kinder, and B, our prime minister's on top of things, and he launched a new gun control regulation. Yeah. It's really going to put an end to all this nonsense. So go to way to go, Justin. 
to your point about the shootings since uh, um, Texas, if you recall, a week earlier was Buffalo, which horrified everyone. Yeah, the Buffalo shooting, yeah, the Texas shooting, and uh, you're right. I read something. There were another ten or twelve people shot in Tennessee the other day. Like these things happen with such frequently frequency, they're not, not even a news item anymore. Yeah. I suspect the only reason this was a news item was because the victims were so innocent. And so young. So I think uh, what's happening, especially south of the border, but to a lesser degree, perhaps in Canada, we're just getting hardened to this type of thing. It's not offending our senses anymore. And that's not good for uh, the future. Chris? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, just my two cents, uh, Luch. Uh, you know, it, very disturbing the shootings in uh, in the United States and, and, you know, the statistics that you're mentioning about how many mass shootings there's been even since uh, last week's shooting, last Tuesday's shooting in, uh, you know, the, the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Um, and to your comment, Brian, it, 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 it obviously doesn't have happening here, you know, to that capacity or even close, but it doesn't mean it can't happen here. Like we just had an incident last week uh, in Scarborough, Port Union Road, Lawrence area, where, um, you know, a man has a um, what alleged to be a rifle, um, maybe even a pellet gun, and he's, um, you know, the police come on scene and whatever uh, exchange they have, verbal exchange or, or whatever happens, they end up shooting and, and killing him. So uh, till the investigation's complete, we don't know, you know, what the intention was from this individual um, that was confronted by the police, but, uh, you know, it can happen here. So I think we need to be prepared the best we can to uh, to deal with those circumstances, those incidents. Well, you know, I think you're right. It can happen. I mean, the frequency is not at all like the States, but, you know, I'm just thinking in my lifetime, we had uh, the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. We had Sir George Williams University in Montreal. OC Transport in Ottawa had a mass shooting. We had, uh, my mind just, it just escapes me right now. But it's not fornicanda. I think the difference is, fortunately, we don't really have to worry that the you know the chances are that it's not going to happen, uh, or you won't be involved in this type of an incident. But it is a possibility, and I think it's incumbent for us, certainly on the private sector, to think about it, to rate it as a risk, to look at the the potential impact and the likelihood, and to plan accordingly. And I think we'll talk about that, I guess, through the session, Luke that there's opportunities for us on the private sector to do a better job. I expect Chris is gonna take it from the police perspective and you'll pull it together, Luke, is how we have to work together to, to keep our uh, cities and organizations safe. Yeah, I, I, we're definitely gonna get into it. That's the, the topic of the day. And uh, you know, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to quarterback these guys uh, and girls who, who responded to the call. Uh, you know, that, that all has to be flushed out. It, I don't like people quarterbacking my moves, and I'm sure you guys don't like people quarterbacking your moves without all the knowledge. So we're not we're not gonna we're gonna try not to get into that. But the reality is, you know, again going back to stats, there's been 214 shootings in the states, 17,000 dead. That's like in total by by guns by gunshots, not all mass shootings. But that's and that's only halfway through the year. We still got another halfway to go. Um, and and now guns are the number one killer of children in the U.S., which was. To me, resonates like. Did you say seventeen thousand gun deaths in the U.S. this year? Seventeen thousand three hundred deaths connected to guns in the U.S. for twenty twenty two so far, and that's from a, 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 oh god, it's called Gunshot Tracker. Uh, it is a website that does you know they try and track all the shootings. 
214 of those are mass shootings. So how it translates into specific deaths, I don't, I mean, I didn't dig that far, but those are the numbers, um, which is which is scary. Like uh, when you think about all the car accidents, and, you know, things that go on in daily life, you think that would be more influential or impactful on, on children who should be playing in the streets type thing. Instead, it's freaking gun, gun, uh, guns and... Uh, you know, I just got rant for a second, maybe get quasi-political, but the thing is, and the question that doesn't get answered is, the U.S. is the only country in the world that has this kind of carnage. No. Canada does No country has this kind of carnage. And Biden, like him or don't like him in his speech, said something that was really profound in my mind. He talked about domestic violence. He talked about mental illness. He talked about, uh, you know, violence in the street. This happens everywhere. So it's not just an American phenomenon. But what is unique to America, and perhaps the West, but certainly in America, is the volume of death and destruction by guns and their inability to realize they've got a major problem and do something uh, uh, tangible to begin to address it. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's get into you know what, what elephant in the room is, as you said earlier, and that is the shooting down in, in Texas. And we're not here to, again to quarterback what happened, but there are some things coming out of that that incident that are quite frankly disturbing. Um, how it played out, the more I read about it, is, is absolutely horrifying. I, I can't imagine what those children were going through uh, and what their parents were going through. Some of them were on the phone with some of these kids. So, you know, you start playing that all in your head and you just think, you start thinking about the nightmare that it was. But having said that, as security professionals that we are, you got, you got to take those incidents, you got to digest them and see if we can find some learnings from them. And again, through initial research, this is all, you know, through web research, nothing's cast in stone at this point, but there are some things that seem to be consistent that I wanted to highlight and then turn it over to you guys again for some, from, for some input and some thoughts on how we might be able to, um, to take those learnings and, and make, it, make it safer for us going forward. So some of the things uh, you know, that I'm, I'm specifically uh, going to point out are the fact that, again, as in most mass shooting cases, there were indicators that this guy was going offside. Um, he was referred to as the school shooter by some of his friends at the school that he attended because he was so sort of dark and off, off the beaten path. Um, he posted some things online to people saying that he was gonna kill his grandmother, which he ended up shooting in the face. And I think she's still alive from, from what, I, what I can recall. Um, but So there were signs and symptoms that this guy was going offside. Nobody reacted or nobody thought they, they should react. So that's a problem that continually seems to be uh, consistent through all mass shootings. These guys always, tend to send some kind of sign out there that nobody recognizes, acknowledges, and reacts to. So that's an opportunity lost to try and stop it before it even becomes a problem. Another one was that the shooter entered through a prop door, not the main entrance, right? He went through the back uh, or side door that was propped open by a teacher. Whether that teacher was in the process of loading something in and out and it was convenience, it is what it is. The fact is it shouldn't have been propped open. And I know policies and procedures at most facilities say that those doors need to be locked. So that speaks to lack of training, lack of awareness of what could happen, or just lack of, you know, it's not going to happen to me. We've all heard that before. And then that starts to deteriorate your security planning when, when your staff starts to take that type of mindset. Um, the school security, they did have security apparently on, on scene, but they weren't there. And quite frankly, I don't care if this guy was going out for lunch or, 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 or whatever. The fact he could have been in the washroom, but there was no redundancy plan. Nobody was manning the door once that person left. And that's a problem in itself especially when you hear about a lot of the people saying, well, let's put security or police officers at the front door. You still got to staff it. You still got to rotate those people. You got to think about those things, not just put them there and think it's solved. 
Um, and then the last one I'm going to talk to is that um, the, the employees did have apparently a, a code system in place. Um, code Black is what I've read that uh, they were yelling to say to everyone that, you know, it was the real deal. They had an active attacker in, in, in the school and that you had to lock down. Problem was a lot of people didn't know what Code Black was. So if that's the case, that would indicate to me, you know, they didn't train it. They didn't exercise it. Um, people weren't aware of it. And so what's the point of having the policy if you're not practicing what you preach? We do fire fire drills every freaking year, right? And fires rarely happen in buildings, if ever. And yet active shooters, which are probably even, you probably got more likelihood of being in this type of situation than a, than a fire these days, they don't practice them at all because you don't want to upset the clients. You don't want to upset the tenants, you know, all that BS that sort of clouds the, the intent of, of the exercise. So I think to me, those four things are really uh, some important takeaways that we can certainly take away as, as private practitioners and apply that to our clients and uh, our everyday security businesses. What are your, your thoughts? Chris, why don't you take this from a police perspective? Yeah. So in saying all that, I agree with you, Luciano, in, in regards to the preparedness and the prevention and the mitigation piece that you, you mentioned. I think um, for me, it's, um, it's that response piece. Uh, that I've been following and, and listening to and and reading about, uh, you know, this is a, an active attack or active uh, shooter scenario. And, you know, the school, for the most part, follows whatever procedure they had in place, whether they trained for it or they had drills or exercises. Um, so they, 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 you know, they went into what they thought was their, their lockdown procedures, right, to uh, isolate, um, you know, potential victims to isolate the the attacker um, but from you know from what's being said in in Texas is that uh, you know this 18 year old enters the school um, I think around 1130 just shortly after 1130 a.m last Tuesday and uh, on the 24th and he uh, you know he's followed in the school a couple of minutes later by responding police officers and uh, you know there's a couple, there's some rounds exchanged, or at least the shooter fires at the police and they, uh, they retreat or they, they back off and, and contain. But I think the interesting part and very disturbing part is, uh, Luciano, you say you don't want to, we don't want to critique someone else's actions, but it's 80 minutes or 78 minutes from the right. time that this individual enters the school to the time that, uh, you know, he's killed by, uh, by law enforcement. So, um, and it goes on to say that the instant commander on scene, and again, another big question is what kind of training has this instant commander had? You know, how many calls have they attended and actually been the instant commander for? How often are they um, doing their drills and exercises when it comes to instant command? Um, you know, and what kind of requalification are, are they doing in, um, you know, in Texas uh, when it comes to the instant command system? Um, but he uh, apparently decides it's now a barricaded uh, suspect as opposed to an active attacker and, and they contain and, you know, allegedly 19 officers in the hallway of the school waiting and waiting, um, deciding that this is now um, a different scenario than active attacker. So that's what's disturbing to me because, um, you know, since uh, 1999 and uh, Columbine High School shooting in, in Colorado, um, tactical teams across Canada and North America and frontline police started training for uh, immediate rapid deployment when it comes to active attackers. So 
to me, looking at this scenario, this is a perfect scenario of um, you get there and you're deploying and you're advancing to the uh, threat and neutralizing the threat. That's your, um, you know, that's your training. Is there a risk involved in that? Absolutely, but um, but those are risks that you have to take, especially in 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 any active attack or active shooting scenario, but in an elementary school with uh, young kids, um, you know, as victims and potential more victims, you have to, uh, you have to neutralize that threat. You know, I, uh, no one wants to armchair quarterback, but I just find it interesting or bizarre that you had allegedly 19 officers in the hallway on the other side of the wall of where this active shooter was. And they're hearing over the radio that it's a barricaded suspect yet over that 45 minutes or an hour there's gunshots going off continuously in my mind that's not a barricaded sus suspect that's an active shooter that's occurring and to your point chris uh it required an immediate resolution y you would agree that these events are usually over in a couple of minutes aren't there aren't they by the time the police get there it's usually the damage is done the police take the guy out this is rather unprecedented I can't think of any other incident, either in Canada or the U.S., where a gunman had as much free time to do what he was doing as what happened in Texas. It's almost as if, you know, some of the scenes uh, that I saw in the news of parents wanting to go in, people wanting to do something, and the police wouldn't let them in. And I understand that, but it's almost like they were facilitating the bad guy that you're free to go for an hour. Like the optics stink and the 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 outcomes are just tragic. Yeah. I agree, Brian. I agree with you in regards to the uh, the timing for these incidents. Uh, you know, traditionally the the top supermarket uh, shooting in in Buffalo just a couple of weeks back, um, the suspect. There was six minutes from the time the suspect started shooting to the time he was taken in custody by police. So six minutes, right? So in Uvalde, um, it's, this goes on for eighty minutes where you know that it, it's it, it, it's heartbreaking right to look and and see this happening and and like you said parents and and other people are at the scene and uh, allegedly uh, you can still hear gunshots and i agree with you brian you can hear those gunshots it's an active shooter scenario it's not a barricaded suspect it's uh it's active shooter and you have to advance to that uh that threat like there's there's no other options at that point I, I was, uh, there's, there's a really good detailed um, summary in, in online that you can read. And uh, it talks about how some of these kids were in that room calling 911 and asking for help. And one in particular girl ended up calling three times within that 80 minute span. And, you know, to your point, guys, like, what are you thinking as an officer? And I'm not, I hate quarterbacking. I, I, I don't want to do that. But the reality is, you know, I carried a gun. You guys, you guys are all former officers. I'd like to believe that if that was my school, I would be freaking going in. And, and I know that the platoon that I used to work on, work with, those guys would go in. Like, you can't wait 80 minutes. Let, let me, I, I just want to ask Chris this question is there's an expectation on the, the private side, on the civilian side, that when something bad happens, you call 911 and the cavalry comes and they save us. Can you just tell our viewers? what the reality is, what the role of the responding police are. Are they there to render first aid, to get you out? What What is your initial immediate response? What does that look like? Because I don't think people realize. 
So the, the training, like I mentioned, Brian, from after uh, 1999 in Columbine, it was, you know, at that rapid deployment piece as if it's an active attacker, active shooter. Um, when the, when law enforcement gets to wherever that property, that school or that commercial uh, real estate property or, you know, that synagogue or that mosque, they're, uh, they're rapidly deploying to stop the threat. So there may be victims, you know, along your path to getting to that threat. But at that point, um, your, your sole goal, your main goal is to stop that threat from, you know, from that threat to continue on and, and to injure or kill more people. So unfortunately, uh, part of that is, is going by, um, you know, potential victims, people, you know, people that have been shot or stabbed or whatever that active attacker's uh, weapon is. Uh, to stop the threat, because if you can't stop that threat, you're just uh, you're just going to cause um, you know uh, you know more in potentially more injuries or more deaths. So there's uh, you know you go by everything, you know you go by the crowds that are uh, fleeing, and you're you're hoping that um, you know the active attacker isn't one of those. But at that point, you're you just have to take that risk, and you have to go towards where you believe that um, you know that suspect is. And I guess, Luke, that probably speaks to the importance of uh, training and preparing and having a plan, because if the plan is I call 911 and I sit back and they're going to rescue me, they certainly are going to, but there is a sequence that has to be followed. And I think to Chris's point, until that threat is neutralized, if three people are shot when the police get there, 10 others are going to be shot if they don't neutralize the guy right away. So what does that mean, uh, Luke, from the private sector side in your mind? What is the role that we as security leaders have to play? Well, you know, in my approach to active attacker scenarios and, and training in particular, and, and this is, you know, we've talked about this a lot. My my challenge with the private sector has always been their focus on the gut when it's too late. The guy's already at the door. Uh, and they're, and at that point, it's it's a police matter. You don't have weapons to take care of them. So you call the police and they have to come. Everything that I focus on on the private sector is is avoiding that. You know, what can you do to prevent that from happening in the first place? So it's really about the awareness piece. It's exercising, training, getting the uh, programs in place to support employees in particular who may be going, you know, having a tough time or spiraling out of control, mental health issues. Those are the things where private sector security programs could really add some support and uh, enhance the capacity of, of the organization to recognize potential active shooter scenarios before they happen and get help for those people or in extreme cases reach out to the police for additional support but to, to assume which i think is often the problem we assume that this is a police police problem and it's not a police problem in my opinion it's a societal problem yeah. we are just in uh, just a point to that luciano um you know for for over 20 years now i think in ontario uh the law enforcement's been training um, with, uh, with school boards, especially the public and the Catholic school boards. And I'd have to say with all that training um, over the years that they're probably the best sector when it comes to, um, you know, preparing for a, a potential situation. So, um, you know, if there's a, for instance, a bank robbery close to uh, certain schools, I know in Toronto, they'll they'll advise those schools that there's a potential threat and advise the school to go into a hold and secure. 
um, till the threat is, uh, is gone and then they can lift that hold and secure. And I know last week at Port Union Road Lawrence, they did, they did exactly that with the schools in the vicinity. So um, they're really good at, um, at that training. So there's, there's, a, there's been a lot that's been put into that between the police and, and the school boards. And to your point you made earlier, um, they do do those drills throughout the year at schools. Um, you know, they notify the parents and uh, the kids that we're going to be, you know, tomorrow we're going to be doing a lockdown drill or a hold and secure drill, and it's only a drill. And 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 I think it's become um, kind of a way of life in in regards to uh, schools in Ontario and how they prepare for those uh, potential situations. So I think they're uh, uh, they do that well. And is there still more to do? Um, absolutely. You know, it's an interesting point. My own uh, children, my daughter, my youngest daughter, when she was in high school, even public school she would on a regular basis have these type of exercises and i was amazed when she would tell me what happened and what she learned and in all the years i and probably you also luke have been in commercial real estate now you as well chris uh, uh responsible for tens of thousands of tenants we never had a drill like that they have they don't even know where the emergency exit is they don't know what to do if it, it, you know, they, we had trouble getting their attention with the fire and the contrast is just so stark about how the schools at least have a plan, at least in Canada. And uh, we are completely, we've got hundreds of thousands of people go to work every single day that most of them have no idea whatsoever. Chris, I want to ask you a question. You uh, spent a lot of your career as a tactical guy, uh, both actually on attack team and operationally. Uh, have you been to many scenes where the public was really prepared? Like, what is your assessment in the city of Toronto of people's understanding of what to do if they find themselves in a violent situation? Um, well, I, I think when you get to a violent situation like that, uh, people, it's not something that they experience every day. So it's natural that there's going to be some, there's going to be chaos and there's going to be panic. Um, but you're going to expect that from the general public. But just going back to, um, you know, the, the security piece of it. And I think, um, you know, for, for places, commercial real estate, office, retail um, environments, I think it's just important to have that, um, that preparation and prevention piece. And, you know, I know, you know, you and Luciano are, are big fans of having a procedure in place but also testing that procedure by having drills and, and, and training and, uh, you know, exercises to see how people react when it comes to, you know, again, we're talking about active attacker, like test your security team to see if there's a situation, what are they gonna do? And really the big part is that, you know, you want them to move however they can, people from an unsafe environment to a safe environment and whatever that takes, whether it's, you know, verbally, uh, you know, going through a, mall, a retail space or a mall space and asking people to, you know, lock their tenant space and and hide or or to leave the, you know, leave the mall completely. Um, you know, I think we have to make sure that we keep on top of that training and have that proper training, but also have exercises so that, um, you know, the security teams are prepared, you know, in the event that something happens. I think it's hard to ask tenants to be that prepared because um, you know there it, it, it is what it is. But I think the security piece, you, you really have to work on that prevention and the preparedness piece uh, with them. And it's interesting. No one thinks twice. Uh, no commercial building, anyways, thinks twice about having a fire safety plan. It's the law, and it's the way we do business. 
and no one thinks twice about having one or two fire drills a year. I think you, the code says you need two. Uh, that's just an expectation. Now, tenants often don't really take it serious enough, but they realize in a commercial building once or twice a year, the bells are going to go off and they expect to do something. Yet there's no sensitivity whatsoever of the other bad things that could happen. And, and that's a culture thing. I mean, that's a challenge for security and law enforcement, but on the private sector side to change that culture. I know, Luke, you and I have had this problem that when we would try and raise that to the uh, senior leaders that we worked with, they just didn't want to embrace that because that would just make people scared and angry. Hmm. And it's sort of like an ostrich effect. You know, if we put our head in the ground and don't think about it, it won't happen. Well, I would say, why don't we do the same thing about fire? And they say, because legislatively, we've got to do something. That's just sort of where where we are with that's, this. That's, it's, like I said, it's all about the money, man. You don't want to inconvenience your tenants because they got to be out of their, their room for an hour, two hours, whatever it is. And, you know, you what you just talked about, it, it twinged my memory. You, you, I know you guys remember the, uh, obviously, the World Trade Center disaster, but there's that story about uh, the fire guy. Uh, he was security manager for one of the firms that ended up getting wet. Well, no, actually, they all got saved. Sorry, my, my correction. He just retired got, the week They earlier. got saved. No, the, the one I'm thinking of, he insisted on doing fire drills okay, every yeah. year, even though they freaking gave him a hard time about it. He pushed it and pushed it. And lo and behold, when that disaster hit, he his team got out of there safely. Unfortunately, he went back into the tower to help others evacuate who hadn't taken that training uh, seriously and ended up dying with the, with the collapse. But it just spoke to the fact that there's a guy who was persistently pushing the need to exercise, exercise. Yeah, it'll never happen. Sure, it'll never happen. But it did happen. And thanks to him, you know, his, his peers owe him uh, their lives, literally. Um, but that's really what we're talking about. You have to push it with our people as well. The difference is, you know, I think the states, they've got a little more compliant attitude to, to, to do, to participate in those types of things when security pushes. At least that, my, my sense is that security is, is, is valued at a little higher level than we are in Canada. It's completely off the radar. In most cases, you know, Chris, you're in, you're in the zone right now, but I know with my former com, uh, company and companies, it wasn't just one. And Brian, I mean, we always talked about the frustration of the, of the GMs and the PM saying, Oh, well, we can't, we, we can't scare people. We don't want to upset people and we don't want to take away from their time in the office. And that's the biggest hurdle. It's not about really being prepared. Yeah. I think uh, to that point, Brian Luciano, there, you know, there, um, there's people in the commercial real estate world that don't want to upset or alarm their tenants, right? They don't want to cause any angst. So if they have a drill or, or you know, an exercise when it came to you know an emergency procedure like active attack or active shooter, you know, some may think, you know, the tenant like, why are we doing this? Are, are we? Is there a threat here, or is there more of a threat than the building across the street, or? A couple of miles from here where I could, you know, be a, you know, in a safer office environment or retail environment. So, but I think it's, uh, it's so critical that we do that training like we do our fire drills because um, it can happen here. Like, look, uh, you know, last fall, I think within a two week period, there were shots fired at two different malls in, uh, yeah. in the GTA, Sherway Gardens, and then at Yorkdale Mall. And thankfully, no one got shot. Um, and from all accounts, the security teams at those malls uh, started going into their uh, their training and their their lockdowns and, you know, moving through the mall space, getting the tenants to lock their stores and moving people out through safe exits from from the mall. And that could have gone really bad if, uh, 
you know, the person kept shooting and, and went through them all. So um, it, 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 I think we have to wrap our head around that. Uh, although these things have been happening in the you know, United States every day, it seems like uh, um, it's an epidemic down there that it can happen here. So we, uh, we have to be prepared. And Chris, you, you hit on the point, uh, which I agree 100%, is that uh, it's harder to train 10,000 tenants. It's easier to train building staff and security. And if we could focus on that alone and make sure you gave the example of those malls, my understanding is those security teams did an incredible job. And because of what they did, uh, I, I believe that's why no one was hurt. And I think that's why the police were as successful as they were in those investigations. I think that's on the private sector what the focus has to be. And Luke, you would know, we have clients that we're helping with that they, their security programs, just like our prime minister's gun programs are just a facade. They don't really do anything. And when you really challenge the client to say, okay, but if such and such happened, what are your, what are, what are, what are your people able to do? What are your guards able to do? Have you done any trainings? They don't, and that's an easy fix. By the way, I just uh, timekeeping also, Luke, we're at the 35 minute mark. I yeah, think. no, good point. Um, I, I'm just going to add that, uh, you know, I, I, I will echo um, some of the comments made there by, by Chris. There, there are some property owners and facilities doing a great job. Uh, so I would never suggest that everyone in this city, in this country is, is, is a disaster. I think the majority are, to be honest. Uh, certainly when you get out of the big names, um, they don't want to spend the money, they want to spend the time, whatever it is. But they don't have the uh, the security um, know-how um, or savvy to deploy programs that are actually effective. Um, I, I recall my neighbor who was at Von Mill shopping, a uh, gunshot went off, it was a grab and, grab and smash and grab uh, jewelry store robbery. And she said, freaking the tenants, the, the tenant retailers came out, grabbed her, took her in, locked the door, like they did exactly what you expect them to do. So it is being done at places that put the time and effort into making sure they have those programs and they're running effectively. I just don't think it's been done enough in enough places. And, and I think office towers in particular are very susceptible to it because they don't think, you know, it's a closed space. They just don't see it as a, as a bigger risk than, uh, than shopping malls do because you've got the, the transitory traffic and you're exposed, it's all public. So maybe that's part of the reason, but I think commercial towers in particular, they just don't have the, uh, they don't have the, the program to, 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 to implement. You know, I've always told property managers, especially those that didn't embrace security, I said, you know, you have a fiduciary and you have a moral responsibility to do the right thing. And they'd look at me and they said, what do you mean? And I said, when my kid or my wife or my partner goes to work, okay, and goes in the path and goes to your mall, I have an expectation that you know what you're doing and you can keep them reasonably safe. And it's a duty of care obligation. And I think many people get it. Uh, many people don't get it. And those are the ones that really have to up the game and have to look, you know, security programs, effective security programs and plans aren't complicated. They're not difficult. It just has to be an acceptance that there are risks and doing and threats and doing something about it. And I, at, at, at our properties, uh, we've uh, last year, we started training uh, property management in, um, under the incident management system, emergency management Ontario. So we've trained uh, the property management, the people that have been identified as instant commanders for the properties, along with our security uh, provider staff, and um, they've embraced the training. Um, so we have one coming up again in a couple of weeks, and uh, 
with more people coming on board from property management and, and the security staff. And, um, and, and we've had, uh, we've done tabletop exercises uh, most recently, about a month ago at one of the properties on active attacker and just um, to have the instant commander, the alternate instant commander and the security staff in the room and just break down the scenario and, and uh, see what, I know it's a tabletop, but it's important that you do that and just not have a procedure in place and nobody knows it or, you know, it's been sitting on the shelf for two years and you got to dust it off and nobody knows what to do if that happens. So you have to have it in place, but you also have to practice it and make sure people understand what they need to do in those, uh, in those incidents. Yeah, and it's and a little thing, but it makes a big difference. Yeah, all I'm going to add, and then I'm going to shut her down, is that, uh, you know, my experience, Chris, your point, when I did manage to roll out those training sessions and incident training, they were always appreciative, and it was like an eye-opener eye to them, and they're like, yeah, we always wondered what would happen, and I'm glad that you guys are finally doing something yeah. to tell us what to do. Like, it's amazing. And so all that fear that the senior team had, it's, it's still based. It's, it's not grounded in, in the reality of what's going on uh, on the ground level. People know that, that there's a risk out there. They're gonna feel better about the fact that you are taking steps to protect them. And I think that's what's important. And the takeaway is make sure your people are trained, give them the tools to do what needs to be done and uh, you know, hope it never happens to you. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to you guys for any closing comments and uh, we'll call it a day. Well, I'll just start quickly. I think uh, the message really is being prepared like the Boy Scouts in training. And there's a lot of places you can go. And one of the first places, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, is your local police department or local police division. And they can give you a lot of good advice. And the community relations officer uh, can come down to your site potentially and talk with you and your people. And then there's always consultants and security experts you could turn to. But there are resources out there. It's not difficult. Chris? I agree, Ryan, and I think just a point to what's been going on in the United States, especially in the last few weeks, is we can't get complacent and think another incident, another incident. Like it's, uh, we have to take it serious, and I think it, you know, for our environment in Canada or you know, in, in Ontario, is that we have to keep that awareness piece and keep vigilant um, and prepared for that. And you're right, Ryan. Like your local police. Um, division will be happy to uh, have those discussions with you in regards to you know what exercises you could do what training you could do uh, potentially with the police and um, I would also say that um, your security experts like your consultants to um, you know to have those procedures retain them have those procedures in place and then practice those procedures over and over um, you know there's never enough practice you can do when it comes to um, emergency management and response. Well said. And uh, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks, Chris, for uh, keeping us company. It's good to have somebody else to talk to besides Brian now and again, because he just grinds my gears sometimes. Yeah, um, I have to echo that, Chris. Thanks for keeping <laughs> company. It's nice to have someone to talk with that has the brain on there and an opinion and someone that uh, knows what they're talking about. So thank you. And please come back to Rescue Me because it's very hard doing this with Luciano alone. Yeah, thanks, guys. Nice hey, talking to you, gents. All right. Guys. Take care. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye-bye. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, 
where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets. Oh, my God.